When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here this week with another in our series of interviews with folks who are, uh, you know, in my mind, kind of the important people in the UFO field that you should be hearing. So today we're joined by MJ Benias. Um, MJ is an educator, writer, uh, blogger, uh, Terra Obscura there. I wrote the book, The UFO People, A Curious Culture. Um, also just, you know, fire tweets, uh, writing for vice recently on, um, these kinds of subjects and things. And overall, I think just voice of reason in the UFO community. So MJ, how are you? Uh, I'm terrific. Thanks very much for having me. And, and I appreciate you nope. calling me the voice of reason. That's, it's really <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> no problem. It's good news, man. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's not, there's not many, <laughs> there's not many in this field right now. So it's nice to have someone who, you know, kind of tells things straight, you know? So MJ, the reason I wanted to have you on, so obviously we're doing a series right now on kind of the, the history of Robert Bigelow and his associates in the UFO field. So, you know, all the way from Bigelow's really kind of early days with this stuff, his first encounter or his family's first encounter with the UFO to, uh, you know, Pudoff's work, uh, within, uh, you know, SRI and his time in Scientology and then John Alexander, you know, all, all the stuff, right? All the things, essentially. Yeah. All of the things. Yeah. All the things. There's a lot of things. The challenge, though, I think for listeners is putting all of this in context of kind of the culture, the overall culture of the UFO f- subculture. Right. It's really hard to kind of understand. And I think it's because really it, it's funny. I was reading. I was rereading um, The Fourth Kind, uh, the book about the MIT conference on abductions. And, you know, in that book, they make the case that that conference was a was a perpetual split in the research community between the kind of positive view of abductions and the negative view of abductions. And I'm reading that today and I'm like, that was not the fundamental split. (laughs) <laughs> like the split, it sometimes it feels like the split is like three people against millions of groups of other kind of triads of people. Um, so in your mind, I guess, what are the predominant? Well, first off, let's start from the beginning. How did you get interested in this stuff? Sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, what we're literally talking about is I think is, is why I got interested. Um, my university background in, in English literature um, is predominantly in culture studies. So, so I've got a, a degree in, in English, which with a feature, with a focus rather, sorry, on, on culture studies and um, history and philosophy. So, um, my academic interest um, is really how it all began. I, I'm I'm, a, I'm fascinated by how subcultures form and how communities sort of gather together to create ideas. Um, so, my interest in, in sort of the UFO community was purely academic um, in the very beginning. Um, I was I was incredibly interested in in talking to these people because they kind of all 
hover around one sort of key idea, at least I thought at the time. Um, and it was, you know, about flying saucers and aliens. Um, and I thought it sort of was quite compelling from an academic standpoint. Um, and then I have to be honest, as years went by of, of sort of living within sort of the paranormal world um, and, and interviewing people, talking to people, investigating sightings, um, you know, working with all of these different individuals, I, I quickly sort of realized how, how varied it was um, and, and at times like totally insane and at times perfectly rational and reasonable. Um, and it just kind of started there. Um, I kind of became just a member of that world. Um, and, and here we are today. Yeah. It's, it's a funny, I think way, you know, your, your introduction to this and your writings always remind me of the first time I went to a MUFON meeting Right. I kind of sat down and I brought, you know, I had like my laptop and all this stuff and, you know, way over prepared for this meeting. Right. Um, and I get in and it's just kind of a group of people who are friendly talking about weird stuff, enjoying each other's company, everything else. And I sit, I sit down to this old, uh, an older woman, right, probably in her, I don't know, mid to late 70s. And I asked her, well, what brings you here? You know, and she told me, well, I just I just like to hang out and look at the people. Right. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, ah, huh, interesting. You know, and it, it's kind of a very similar, I think, view to kind of how uh, I don't know how you got involved here. Right. It's the people that are the interesting part. Yeah. I mean, there's like I said, from, from a, a, a subcultural perspective. Um, I walked in thinking that this was going to be like any other subculture, right? But I was, I was interested in, I mean, oh, I had a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd and, and I love sort of Star Trek and I love the X-Files as a kid. And so, you know, for me, it was, it was, it was interesting from a content perspective. Um, and then it was also interesting from an academic perspective and just the, the notion of a subculture and, and what I was so used to studying, reading about and, and focusing on in, in my university coursework. Um, so, I, I got into it and, and, you know, I quickly realized that um, the content was incredibly fascinating to me, but how quickly people fell down sort of the ideological slope of, of previous sort of iterations of, of the, the subcultural ideas and, 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 and how you have this repetition in the community of, of ideas that, that kind of just circulate over and over and over again. Um, and they kind of repeat themselves um, over and over and over again, it just depends on the decade, right? Like, you know, history kind of circles around um, the UFO and, and you have similarities across the decades of, of what's happening. Um, and, I, and, and UFOs are just this weird little idea. It's like a MacGuffin, right, for this, for this subculture. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it was, yeah, purely academic um, at first. And then I, I kind of fell in love. Yes. Yeah, it's... The history, you know, from an from an academic standpoint, it's hard not to see. So I when I was at university, I took a class on um, I took a class on Marxism, on, on Marxism and culture. Right. And it was uh, this class was, you know, people in the philosophy department talked about this being one of the hardest capstone classes you could take. Uh, both because of just the amount of work you had to do is like intense, you know, very, very intense in terms of writing and reading, but also because it would make you question everything you thought about everything up to that. Point, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. so, you know, the, the most ardent, um, what's the word, the most ardent, you know, uh, 
I don't know, philosopher of mind, uh, you know, would, would go into this course thinking that they knew what they thought the world was. And then they'd leave being like, oh, my God, it's all been it's all been bought and sold to me. That's right. And, you know, the UFO field to me has always it's always struck me as a really great microcosm of or a really interesting microcosm of sort of that same kind of almost Adorno Horkheimer cultural industry (laughs) argument, you know, that um, every generation, we're just kind of making it in some ways, the cyclical stories are, are interesting, but there's always something a little bit different about each one. And it makes me wonder if it's not just like a, a society's way almost of a certain subset of getting themselves used to the idea that, the government lies to us and uh, your life is out of your control and people are uncomfortable with that. But this is a way to confront those anxieties in kind of a nice set. You know, they serve coffee and cake at the MUFON. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's an easy way to confront those fears. Sure. I, I think you're right to a point. I think that, that um, I, I, would, I would even, we could probably move this outside of, of, of sort of economics and, and, and politics, right? We could move it Absolutely. into just this, the, the condition of being human, right? Um, you know, we, we post-enlightenment, right? We, we walked around and we still walk around kind of thinking we're the masters of our domain, right? Um, you know, humans are at the top of the food chain. Um, we're the only species that can sort of manipulate the environment around it to, to you know, make it easier for us to survive. We develop technology, whatever. So, so from a strictly human perspective, you know, post-enlightenment, we, we, we had this idea that, that humans are, are the peak uh, and the best um, um, let's say creature on this planet or, or living organism, whatever, right? The most rational, the most logical, the most intelligent. Um, and, and, but, but life isn't like that, right? Um, we quickly realized, you know, life does not function on this principle, right? In fact, we're, we're, we're quite susceptible to death and we're quite susceptible to chaos and we're quite susceptible to, to a universe that's very unkind and, and doesn't necessarily give a crap as to, you know, our ability, it will destroy us anyway. Um, people still die. We still get sick, you know? So, so this constant um, post enlightenment battle of, of human versus nature, right? Where we're trying to govern the world around us and, and she refuses to be governed in a sense. Um, so, so I think what's really interesting about UFOs as, as, a, as a strictly kind of human, yeah, human project um, is, is that they're, they're a sort of a symbolic manifestation um, of, of this battle um, between us and, and nature, us and the world around us. Um, we're, we're constantly struggling with... Um, we're constantly struggling with, with our own survival and UFOs act as a sort of perhaps guide for some people or, or a symbol of, 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 uh, of a messianic kind of salvation or a symbol of invasion and death, right? Something we must fight against another aspect of nature. We have to go to war with, um, you know, like there's, there's, you can kind of go down a lot of paths here, but, but UFOs are, are a modern iteration of, of sort of any monster story. Um, from ancient times, right? Um, this constant kind of social battle we engage in with ourselves and our own frailty and, and mortality. Um, and then you tie in the politics and then you tie in the economics and then you tie in the cultural. And it, it just kind of staggers and becomes so nuanced and, and it's almost impossible to totally deconstruct 
the UFO community or the UFO narrative or the UFO discourse. It's, it's really, I think, impossible, but it's fun to try and do it um, because we can get to some interesting academic places with it, I think. Absolutely. Well, it's one of the, it's one of my biggest, I think, frustrations, even, I mean, you know, there is a plethora of books and lectures and things that touch on this kind of subject without getting into it explicitly. And, you know, one of, I think, in my mind, at least one of the most interesting links that can be made between, say, the modern day UFO subculture and previous iterations of this same kind of idea like you're hinting at is the demonological or kind of the uh, what's the word witchcraft trials you know sure. because again it's a lot of the same even some of the stories are the same you know a guy going into a courtroom saying you know uh, sister mary came into my room last night flying on a broomstick and took me out of the room to a wooded area uh, for the witch's Sabbath. And I saw bright lights and I saw, uh, I heard you know, whir- the yep. whirring of winds. Exactly. Right. And then I came back to bed and I woke up as if nothing happened. Right. Um, even in those situations, right. These, again, these stories don't um, like we see on the show a lot. These stories don't really change. They just kind of change flavor. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, the cultural reality from, from which sort of the viewer or the experiencer, let's say, exists is going to influence their interpretation of, let's say, an event, right? I think of this as almost a very interesting test subject or test case area for a lot of these ideas in philosophy and psychology and sociology and anthropology and whatever uh, of how a subculture forms and how in a – to me, in school, in philosophy classes, the most interesting the most interesting question was always, why do people believe the wrong thing? Sure. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, if there's if there's a choice between A and B, and there's loads of evidence on the side of A, why do some people still choose to believe B? Right. Or not? Maybe not choose is the wrong word. Why do some people still believe B, even in the face of all of the evidence of A? And when I was in school, that was mostly focused on the idea of technology. Right. Why do some people not believe in climate change? Why do some people not, you know, why does my grandma think that the president of the United States is trying to ruin her life by installing more efficient light bulbs? Right. That's an interesting question to me. The UFO field is almost a perfect microcosm of that in its most extreme. You know, it's like a perfect example of that. My one of my biggest frustrations is why aren't there more academics doing research on these subjects or in these areas, even from just a sociological? Sure, well, I think standpoint. there are. I mean, I mean, when you look at um, you know the papers on academia, um, like that website, right? That that you do, like the the one where you can download papers all the time. Um, you have tons of research sure. being done on on UFOs from a sociological perspective. I think there's like I think there's like something like you know five PhD dissertations a month on 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 the UFO subject. Um, uh, so the research is being done. What isn't happening is you aren't seeing that research um, making a connection with the community itself, right? So these individuals who do their studies don't really exist within the UFO community, not like you and I do, right? Um, they they hover mm-hmm. outside of it. Um, they They pop in and out every once in a while. They visit the occasional conference, just to sort of see what people are up to. They read the books, they write their dissertation, and then they walk away. Um, 
And very few choose to stay within this world, right? They don't fall into it. Um, because I think they realize very quickly, just like you know, you and I have realized, is that there's a lot of drama within the UFO community, right? And it's just not worth it. Um, you know, you take someone like Dr. Diana Pasalka, right, who, who, you know, is very much engaged or was engaged rather in the UFO community, but has since walked away after publishing her book um, because her book came out and she drew significant ire from members of the community um, because, you know, she was labeled as a disinformation agent. She was labeled as a patsy of some intelligence agency. She was labeled as this or that. Some of it was very unkind and personal. Um, you know, she received death threats. So, so as an academic, right, as someone who, who has, you know, a, a fairly reasonable level of education, you realize that that type of behavior does not exist in your world um, because, you know, people would be removed from it. Um, um, hmm. But that doesn't happen in the UFO community, right? It, it sort of continues to exist. So, so I don't think academics really want to hang around in the UFO community because of the climate, um, because of how negative it is, um, because how it often just devolves to ad hominem attacks, uh, ad hominem, ad hominem, ad, it's fun to say, ad hominem attacks, um, you know, and, and, and that's fine. Um, so I don't necessarily blame them, but I, I, I agree with you. I think there should be more study of, of the, of the phenomenon, of well, the community, like, of, of the subculture for sure. Yeah. What's kind of funny, I think is there's this view that, there's the view in the UFO community itself that academics don't get interested in this. And then the ones that do are, like you said, uh, pillared <laughs> or, or, you know, yeah. pilloried rather, just attacked and, you know, whatever. And then, you know, it kind of brings to mind this idea that, you know, they don't, the UFO community doesn't really want academic discussion or, dis, or you know, uh, dissection of their field. What the UFO community wants is a scientist to get on TV and say, yes. I believe in yeah, aliens. <laughs> they want, they want I think, confirmation. I think you've you actually like, hit the nail on, on the head. Um, because unfortunately, with, with any academic study, any, any sort of rigorous examination, um, you're going to fundamentally get to a point where you're going to say, this idea is correct or closer to being correct. And this idea is not correct or closer to being not correct, right? You're going to have to start drawing lines depending on your research um, as to what's sort of accurate, what's not accurate. And unfortunately within the UFO community, it's so varied, right? The ideologies are so varied. They're all over the place. Um, you're going to have people disagreeing with each other yet. They're still part of the same community, right? It's the funniest thing when you walk into mm -hmm. something like contact in the desert and in one room, like Jacques Vallée is giving a lecture, and in the other room, Corey Goods giving a lecture, um, and, and the two of which, their 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 entire understanding of the UFO phenomenon, or their entire method of, of of let's say selling or speaking about the UFO phenomenon, is so fundamentally diametrically opposed to one another um, that they could never have a conversation, right? Like they could just never have a conversation about what UFOs are in any serious or rigorous sense because they come from two opposing discourses of, of what UFOs are, right? Valet would say that this is some sort of, you know, metaphysical intelligence, you know, that that sort of has been with us since forever and, and, it, and it influences us in some mystical way. And Corey Good's going to tell you, well, no, man, like I've been to Mars and I fought the aliens and they're, they're flesh and blood like me. In fact, I shot them and, and there's reptilians and they're like, you know, like it would be like, what the hell are you talking about, man? There's this sort of fundamental disconnect between ideas within the UFO community. Right. But what's what's so interesting, though, is that 
in other fields, you have this diametric opposition as well. You know, I mean, I had, I'll never forget this. I had a, I did a class on, uh, I did a class on naturalism and the professor that gave it was very focused on the idea of, or very interested, I should say focused, but interested in the idea that language, language is a extension of our cognitive function. And so the way we think relates to the way that we act or, or do and speak. And so that's how language came about. And so language is a very powerful way of dissecting the brain's functions and things, mm-hmm. right? Kind of, a, you know, a, a kind of sellers esque kind of view of things. And then um, in that same class, though, there were about six of us. And, you know, I'm over there writing papers about witchcraft and aliens and crap. And, you know, there's uh, there was another uh, another colleague of mine or classmate, I guess you should say, writing about how all of this naturalism stuff is a big bunch of bull crap and it's all metaphysics, you know. And we managed to get through a whole semester of reading each other's papers without tearing each other apart. That level of, I guess, academic the, the, the way I look at it is. I trusted that that other classmate of mine made that argument from a place of good faith. She legitimately believed that and she had reasons to suppose those things that she said. Even though I don't agree with them, she was coming from a place of good faith. And there are people in the UFO field who I think have that same view, right? I don't necessarily agree with Jacques Jacques Vallée's uh, uh, statements or, or ideas about this subject, but I don't doubt that he is coming from a rigorous place. Right of academic knowledge, but there's no, um, there is no control of that in the UFO community. So, you know, you can have people like Corey good say I've been to Mars and I, you know what I mean? Right. There doesn't seem to be any kind of control of that, that that does exist in other academic fields. And it's, um, it's it's just why isn't why hasn't yeah, there I, I been? Think <laughs> do they not? Do people? Right. I think there's a few it? things. I mean, I, I think fundamentally the first thing you have to deal with is, is that that UFOs are like religious in a way, right? There, it's it is a, a huge aspect of it is is based upon faith, um, and and once you dive into the realm of belief, what people believe in, right? Suddenly they're going to have some some bias, and they're going there's going to be, you know. Um, definitely like cognitive bias um, and anything that disagrees with their beliefs is automatically heresy. Right. And, and there's no, they're not going to argue with it um, in, in, in a rigorous or, or um, you know, a a method of using evidence. They're just going to tear the person apart because they don't want to hear it anymore. Right. It's the, it's the the famous case of of St. Nicholas, um, this, this is something no, no one knows about St. Nicholas. Um, he, yes, he, you know, apparently delivered ch- toys like t- to poor children and money to poor children. But the way he ended arguments with heretics is he punched them square in the face. Um, so he didn't argue with them in, in, in um, a rigorous way. He just basically shot them up by hitting them. Um, and I think that's kind of how the UFO community kind of reacts. Um, you know, there's, there's that gut reaction of, you know, you're not on my side, therefore... Um, I'm not going to listen to you anymore, and and that's it. They shut them out. Um, from from the academic idea or the sort of the collegial atmosphere of of academia versus you know UFO community. Um, I think the first thing is the vast majority of people within the UFO community aren't academics. Um, but the the other idea is I think most academics will will believe or or maybe believe is the wrong word. Most academics will will take a position, right? Um, like I've done this, I've taken a position 
in, in, in various, you know, papers regarding subculture and whatever, but always with the kind of background understanding in the back of my head, that pragmatic place in my head, it's like, you know, I could be wrong here because another academic could prove me wrong. Um, because there is something to rest. Absolutely. There is something to rest proof upon, right? Um, so if suddenly my worldview and my theory begins to change or shift, I don't necessarily get angry. Um, I just kind of go, yeah, well, listen, you know, his evidence or her evidence is better than mine. Um, you know, maybe they do have something there and I'm willing to adopt aspects of their philosophy, of their background, of their um, evidence into, into my world to kind of alter my interpretation, right? Um, you know, when I first walked into the UFO community, I was very much a person who was like, you know, I'm, 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 if I had to venture my, if I had to hedge my bet and kind of say, you know, let's say UFOs are real, just for like the sake of argument, let's say, you know, it, it's a real phenomenon. I'm going to go with the fact that it's aliens because that's what I've been told, right? Like everyone talks about how it's aliens from another planet. This makes the most sense. There's billions and billions and billions and billions of galaxies out there. Surely life must exist elsewhere. Therefore, it's probably, you know, nuts and bolts, E.T. My philosophy has since changed, right? I've had plenty of, of time to reflect and think about this. And, and I've kind of begun to lean towards the more Valet Keelian approach to, to the phenomenon. Whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know. Like, I also personally don't, don't care um, because at some point, hopefully, somebody's going to prove me wrong um, and I'll accept it. But... Um, you know, it's just your interpretation changes, but with the constant understanding that you, you very well could be wrong, so don't rest on your laurels too much. What's another aspect, another part of it, I guess, that I think is kind of interesting is, and and here's the thing too, I don't think that we should belabor. I don't want to belabor the point that academic collegiality or whatever even really exists <laughs> yeah. in some cases. Like I have oh, seen yeah. grown men shout at each other at a conference over the calculation of a pipe diameter. You know what I mean? Like that, that doesn't necessarily always happen. So, you know, For there's sure. heat everywhere. Yeah. I just, one of the big challenges that I think some of us have faced, I know you've gotten heat for this. I have certainly gotten heat for this. A lot of people asking questions of to the stars Academy, their relationship with Bigelow, all of it have gotten heat for this is the idea that when this information comes around again, when the cycle happens and the same stories happen or these people show up again who have been discredited in the past or, yeah. you know, whatever, right? When something comes back around, what's interesting in the UFO field that I don't think necessarily happens in other fields is they are given almost a fresh, sure. like a yeah. clean Holy sleep. crap. Can, yeah. I mean, listen, I, 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 yeah. I, you know, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the fact that Bob Lazar is a thing again is, is to me, no, that's, that's not crazy. TSA's fault, but, um, you know, like, like I don't <laughs> understand, um, how we've, we've already gone down this road. It's well trodden. Um, the data is kind of in. Um, and then suddenly you have this whole new generation of people in the community who, who are now getting this new set of data regarding Mr. Lazar, but it's not really new. It's just kind of been rebranded um, and, and, and they're kind of buying it, right? Or they walk around with this kind of, like, oh, you, well, know, yeah. you, know, you know, maybe it is true, you know, like we can't write it off totally. And it's like, well, no, we, we kind of can, but, um, 
because we have already. <laughs> um, right, it's happened. We have the info. It, it, well, it's to me, it reminds me of you know, and the one like Lazar is a great example of this. Another one, the one that drives me crazy personally is Pudoff, but we're gonna get into that on my episode here coming up soon. Um, it, it would, it's almost as if Jose Canseco, someone decided to do a, a documentary on Jose Canseco now and just focus on all the good stuff, right? Oh, you know, home runs and everything else and whatever, and not mention at all any of the steroid stuff, you know, and, and then people be like, no, like all that. We we already did this. It's not true. None of it's true. And then being like, shut right. up, chill, stupid, stupid government. Right. Yeah. man. I think I think it's it's tough, right? Because I, like, I, like I said earlier, right, there's there's a huge belief component to UFOs. There's definitely a spiritual, religious aspect, right? So, so people have a fundamental desire to want whatever their belief system is, is to sort of be like ratified as true. Um, so, so I think that's, mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's a really big problem, I think, within the UFO community. Um, because we need to take a step back and just say, listen, you know, whether they're real or not, fine. We can debate the, the physics. We can debate maybe some of the cultural pieces. But we can't necessarily debate your belief system, right? If you walk in with a preconceived notion, it becomes very difficult to have a, a reasonable conversation because at one point, like, you're going to get offended or I'm going to get offended. Um, and then the conversation is mm. going to end, right? And we just start yelling at each other. Um, and, and and Lazar or or any other, you know, well-trodden paths ufologically that have already kind of been thoroughly disproven. Once people bring them back, you suddenly have a whole bunch of new people starting to believe again, right? So now we have a whole bunch of people of believers in Lazar who are not going to necessarily approach it from a bird's eye view. They're going to approach it from their belief space. Um, and, and, and it's also really, you know, to, to Mr. Corbell's credit, He's a very good sort of marketer. He's a very good user of social media. So he's very good at the messaging component and the marketing component of this. Um, you know, uh, not so much as at, at maybe the, the critical aspects, um, the fact that, you know, Mr. Lazar's criminal record and, and his shady business dealings, you know, didn't come up very often in the film or were they sort of quickly glossed over in the film compared to the rest. Um, you know, we, we need to talk to we need to kind of hit home this idea that that you know mr lazar has a long history of of very shady business dealings that would verge on um you know being a confidence artist um right it's it's just they're but always people want to hear that right people want to hear the, the the ufo bit right you know i don't want to hear yeah that he it's married the just, same woman twice under a different name yeah. right i don't want to hear that the day mm-hmm. after his or the day of, basically, of his of his first wife's suicide, they moved into her house um, immediately. Um, you know, they they don't want to hear about the the brothel. They don't want to hear about um, his business dealings with Mr. Bigelow um, and 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 defrauding Mr. Bigelow. Um, right? They don't want to hear about right and Bigelow being like, like they don't want to hear about that. Yeah. Right? They don't so, hear about that. what what do you do? Right? I mean. <laughs> So, so if they don't want to hear that, they're not going to go down that road with you. Part of me wonders, part of me wonders if, so I always liken it. And again, I actually, you know, frankly, I, I don't know all that much about Canada's cultural okay. history. It's not very good. So I, you know, a lot of this comes. <laughs> we were jerks. <laughs> well, I, 
listen, man. Listen, man. United States, yeah. come on. We we. I was gonna say we win. We it's it's still not great here, but the one of the interesting things to me is how similar this seems to this seems like in the United States the history of religious movements reforming themselves in a way that is to the point where they are, uh, you know, even like evangelical religious organizations. Right. And again, nothing against um, nothing against those kinds of religious beliefs, whatever you believe what you want, but it's, there's a, it's, it's, but by, by not having that kind of uh, central control of almost peer review that the Roman Catholic church, let's say has, you end up with these smaller splinter groups that introduce all kinds of things that maybe would not be able to exist in a place with more careful control. You know, so you have religious groups in the United States who believe that the earth is right. 6,000 years old or that dinosaurs and man existed, you know, cohabitated together or anything else. Uh, to me, the UFO field is very similar to that. And, I, you know, in my mind, Part of that, part of the reason that that has happened, is because of a lack of a central, I guess, leadership or a place. You know, kind of, you know, and, and in my mind, that's what MUFON was always. Yeah, this supposed is in my to book. Um, you know, the UFO world, the, let's say the UFO discourse, let's call it that, doesn't have an ivory tower, right? There's no, there's no governing body that mm-hmm. has established itself to sort of be. You know, we we decide what. Um, you know, who is a ufologist based upon credentials, based upon behavior, based upon following the rules, whatever. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, so, so yeah, there is no pope of, of ufology, let's say, and there is no, there's no leadership. Um, it's, it is a free for all. It's a total anarchy. Um, and, and, and there's, there's positives to that and there's negatives to that. Um, but what, what you bump into mm-hmm. is, is because of, there's because there's no central control. There's no governing agency that issues licenses and can remove them or whatever. Um, anyone can say whatever they want, um, and and that if they have enough people in their corner, they have enough followers, right? They their message becomes you know fundamentally huge, and it becomes a massive gong in in right now a chorus of of sort of little voices. Um, you know, we, we often refer to sort of Jacques Vallée's notion of the invisible college, right? Um, and, and these are, you know, people that we sort of have heard of, Gary Nolan, Kit, Kit Green, Hal Putoff. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously others, Jacques Vallée himself. Um, Hynek was in it back when he was still alive. Um, but, you know, you had these sort of this loose collection, these sort of confederacies of these little pockets of academics who were engaged in, in, in sort of the UFO study. Um, but they didn't really cohabitate with with the rest of the ufo community right they sort of remained separate um they sort of um didn't like it right so they kind of removed themselves and hung out with themselves um and did their own thing um and and they were very lucky to receive funding i mean you know bob bigelow was heavily involved in that or that group of of, of individuals um and and, you know they had friends in high places Mm -hmm. 
Um, but then on the flip side, right, you could probably say someone like David Wilcock is is a very powerful figure within the, at least he was, a very powerful figure within sort of UFO discourse in the last five years. Um, he had millions of followers. He is, his books were, were like bestsellers. Um, so his word for literally like two or three hundred thousand subscribers to his YouTube channel was massive and it had a, it had significant sway and force. Um, and to the stars is, is very much kind of, you know, taken that mantle a little bit. The last two years has very much seen to the stars become a, a massive force within the UFO discourse, right? They have a loud voice, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you're going to kind of see this, these, these sort of loud voices pop up and then they kind of go away. Um, and then someone else takes their place who has a lot of followers and then they kind of go away. Um, and then there's the rest of us, right? There's sort of these one-offs like you and me, and we have our little community that we talk to and, and, and we sort of have our own little locus of, of, of influence, I suppose, or we work with other people. Um, and everyone's kind of just trying to do their own thing, I guess, in the UFO community. There's no one who can say, you know, this is, this is law, right? Um, and, and MUFON, MUFON was another voice, right? Yeah. I think MUFON had significant street cred, um, you know, in the eighties and nineties, um, it had street cred, I think, in the early 2000s. But I think that street cred has since sort of waned. I think you've had, you know, leadership in MUFON that hasn't exactly been the best. Um, I think there's been a lot of scandals in the last decade for MUFON that that have really weakened its position. Field investigation numbers, like, sorry, numbers of field investigators are, are going down. MUFON membership is going down. Um, because people are mm-hmm. no longer flocking to it as as a major voice anymore. It's being replaced um, and there's a lot of reasons, I think, for this. But it's also just part of how this community exists. Um, things sort of come and go. Um, Hynix Qfos was, man, that was the thing to be in, right, in the 60s. Um, right. And it's gone, right? I mean, so well, it's predominantly gone. Um, to the point where I'm sure you could go on Twitter and like ask people in the UFO community what Qfos is. They have no idea what you're talking about. They never heard of it. Right. Well, that's that's I think to me the most fascinating part of a lot of this is because of that lack of um, because of that lack of a central repository for this knowledge, a lot of it gets lost. There are, I mean, you know, Mufon's numbers are dwindling because, frankly, Mufon members are dying. They're an old crowd, so it gets. I think it's such a shame. To have, you know, then there's a couple of people trying to do this kind of archival work, right? Isaac Coy is one that comes to mind, trying to put or trying to bring this old kind of information to make it available, to digitize it, to have it available online. But it's, it just seems like such a, I guess the frustration for me is I feel like I have learned a lot by talking to people and reading stuff from say people like you and um, you know, others where like, I feel like I have learned more about this subject and have been able to discard some old ideas that I had that it's possible to do that. It's possible to learn something about UFOs, but a lot of people don't aren't doing that because it it happens at their own pace. I mean, number one, obviously, of course, like with anything, but there also is no – there's no single place to get good information or there is no, like you said, kind of 
ivory tower or, or college or anything else. And I don't even know if there right. necessarily should be. I guess I would just like to see more of uh, – I think that in general there are more of – there are more people like us involved who want to have kind of information like that available and who would have their minds changed by evidence right. to the contrary of something. Then there are kind of more of the rabid, um, you know, all or nothing people. Well, that's a big part of it, right? And that plays again to the belief idea, right? There's all these people who walk around and they are all or nothing. You either play for our team or you don't. And and Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's not how how the real world is, right? I mean, you have to be pragmatic in this world because the vast majority of data in this world is totally made up and it's just total crap. So so you can't be all or nothing in 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 this universe. Um, it's just not possible. You always have to retain that bit of, of pragmatism to just say, you know what, um, you know, like it, it, it's really interesting and I think this is a really in- great idea and I hope it turns out to be true. But I'm also not going to throw in 100% because what if it's not, right? Like, let's talk about this arts parts thing, right? There's There's been mm-hmm. a lot of discussion about these 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 Linda Moulton Howe pieces that, that TTSA recently acquired. Um, and and there's there's been a lot of rumor and hearsay. There's been a lot of talk that, oh, initial tests have verified that the isotopic ratios of, of this material is it proves that it's it's not from Earth or something. And it's like, okay, listen, that's great. And 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 I I I personally really hope that's true. Like that would be fundamentally life-changing for for our species if suddenly we found metal that was not from mm-hmm. like I want that to be the case. But but my want my wanting that to be the case does not make it the case, right? Nor does my believing it to be the case make it the case. You're entitled to have your desires and your beliefs and your wants, and, and you're entitled to have you're entitled to have your opinions, and that's fine. But you're not entitled to have your own facts. Um, and and until those facts come out, right? Until peer reviewed papers come out that like actually say, yeah, listen, we've had this stuff tested in in eight different labs, all verified the same findings. You know, this is something unique. Um, you know, then we can be excited. Then we can get worked up and, and maybe be like, okay, well, let's, you know, why is it like this? You know, why is the metal different? Let's, mm-hmm. let's go down these, these more theoretical um, and, and speculative roads now. But right now, we don't have anything. I mean, we have a few bits of metal that currently are, have a value of $35,000. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I, I, I mean, you know, for Mr. DeLong, $35,000, I'm sure, isn't very much money. But... We, we need to, you know, as you sort of expertly put in the article, you know, what are we paying for here in a sense, right? Are, are we paying for the metal or are we paying for what that, the, the belief that that metal possesses, right? The history. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the big, one of the biggest, one of the challenges here with that analysis too is what constitutes what constitutes verifiable proof of something like that is going to be different for different people. And it's one of the things that we kind of, we try to touch on, or I try to touch on in an article that I wrote for, um, uh, open minds, UFO, uh, you know, the, the website where, right. If a, a layman, if, if I showed you a, an SEM photo of what, um, alumina, just aluminum, being uh, oxidized in air looks like under a microscope, you would see that it appears to be composed of perfect hexagons um, that appear to be appear to have had to have been engineered. Right. Do you know what I mean? They look too perfect 
to just have been naturally growing that way. But no, in fact, nature is lazy and loves patterns. And so crystals tend to grow in structures right. of that kind of sort, right? So the even evidence that a lay person might consider to be evidence of engineering, unless proven to have some purpose, might not be engineered. And even then, it might not be engineered. There has to be a, a preponderance of evidence to make this claim. And I've said, I've said from the beginning continuously, I really hope that Tom DeLong proves me to be a stupid idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like I would love. Do you are you are you kidding me? Yeah. It would be awesome if this is a real if if we have a piece of material that we can shoot tetrahertz uh you know light waves at to then generate a gravitational field of some sort. Um, holy crap, man. Yeah. We're going to have jetpacks, hoverboards. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. You know, I would be thrilled if that was the case. But we, but at the same time, you have to, I don't know. If, <laughs> yeah, it'd be awesome. But you need to couch that in what do we know so far? And, and, right. and what have they given us? And what do we know about the material to begin with? You know, this is a piece of material that has a storied history in the UFO community. Um, like, so, oh, man. So, sorry, I was going to just, just just to sort of jump in. It's like, like, like I agree with you, right? I want this to be so true um, because it would be the best. <laughs> but there's no – no one's asking anybody to – to like buy in outright and just throw their cards in and just be a believer, right? Like nowhere does it say sort of in, 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 in life that you need to like believe someone outright. Um, and, and like ah, I'm trying to word this properly um, to, to the stars does not necessarily need you to put them on some pedestal and worship the ground they walk on, right? They're going to do what they're going to do. Um, and they're going to engage in, in their, their work and their studies and their programs and, and whatever. And, and, good or ill, they're going to do it. Um, they don't need people to cheer them on. Like they, you know, like they just don't care. Right. They just really, really, they just don't care. They're just going to do their thing. Um, and, and what, what we need to be cognizant of is, is when they start making claims of truth, when the evidence is still out. Right. Um, so, so when, mm -hmm. when they announced in the, by a press release that they obtained sort of exotic metamaterials, you know, as someone who, who, you know, works now in, in the journalism field, you know, I decided, well, listen, this is, they're making a truth claim. They're saying we are in possession of exotic metamaterials that, you know, are potentially otherworldly. That's a big claim to make. So we need to talk about this. So I wrote an article about it kind of being like, well, let's look at it realistically here. Is this actually, you know, what do they actually have? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, obviously the follow-up was this, the second piece, but we need to kind of keep the critical, we have to keep the feet to the fire a little bit and be critical and remain critical. It's not bad to be critical. I don't think criticism is, is tantamount to rebellion um, and, and hatred. Just because you're critical of something doesn't mean you hate it. You're just trying to keep people honest. Um, and, and I hope I'm, I hope, I hope I, you know, I hope the next article I write is, you know, yep, there you go. They just confirmed it. And, and Oxford university and Cambridge and Harvard have all gotten behind them and, Everyone's confirming this. Yes, it's it's from Zeta Reticuli. How great would that be? Yeah, it'd be it'd be amazing. I mean, the one of the one of the biggest things that I really wanted to get to with this series was give people the context of this group to the Stars Academy because it has been very frustrating to get onto 
to go on to shows uh, or even this podcast, let's say, or on Twitter or whatever, and discuss these things, there's so much history there that it is nearly impossible to expect people to know all of it. Right. It's, you know, to know the history, to know, to be able to form an opinion on modern, say, Chinese trade policy, you don't need to know the history of China all the way back to like the Han Dynasty. But it feels that way. It feels that way in the UFO world because a lot of these same people have been doing this for so long. So I guess as a closing thought here, if you were to introduce people to this subject or if you were to suggest to people about, you know, when they're learning about to the Stars Academy or when they're looking at these articles and things, what do you suggest they look into first to get that kind um, of background? Well, it's hard. I know yeah, it's a hard question. I think you, you mean, yeah, you, you've, you've really created a, this perfect way for me to say something stupid and then get yelled at on Twitter. So where, where can I, we're going to proceed with caution. Um, I would say this. I, I, I would say we need to look first at um, the history of, of definitely the people involved. And I don't mean Tom DeLonge. Um, I, I honestly think Tom DeLonge's a bit of an innocent in all this. Um, I think Me too. he's just really into UFOs. And he was able to to somehow muster together these, these men um, who, who have been perceived as being the insiders um, and, and in some ways potentially have been insiders um, into sort of this odd little world um, of, of, of special access programs and, and, and intelligence organizations and, and whatever. So, you know, I, I don't think Tom DeLong is, is necessarily um, the, the, the biggest fish to fry here. Let's put it that way. I'd love to meet the guy. I'd love to interview him. I'd love to sit down with him. So Tom, if you're listening, you know, blah, 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 you can find my email. But um, the, the real, the, the, the interesting part that we need to look at is, is the connections between um, the 1970s Stanford Research Institute um, and how Hal Putoff and Kit Green um, were, were involved in, in that study, how that ties into sort of the current uh, military and and private industry that that is engaged in in um you know creating weapons and 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 um, manufacturing um within sort of government programming um you need to look at how these gentlemen were involved in ufology in the 1980s during the the literally the decade of of perhaps the most galvanizing of ideologies in within the ufo world i mean like the 1980s was really when I think modern ufology kind of that we have today really began. Like, I think we can talk about 1947 and, and all that. And that was definitely kind of 70 years ago was definitely the, the sort of the, the, the seed was planted, but I think really the roots of, of modern UFO discourse really began in the eighties. And this is when we kind of see the huge rise of, mm-hmm. of, of, of stuff like alien abductions, the huge rise of hybrid programs, the huge rise of, of crashed um, objects, you know, in various deserts being collected and, and secured those myths sort of always existed, but they weren't as prevalent as they are now. Um, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the, the 1980s saw that explode into the, into sort of modern UFO discourses being really the key ideas of it. Um, and, and their involvement in that, I mean, they all, they all still worked together at that time. Um, there was a sort of invisible college, um, that, that existed. Valet was a part of it. Put off was a part of it. Green was a part of it. Um, 
you know, you would have had Russell Targ and, and a few others, but they all kind of fundamentally did the same thing, you know, and then into the nineties, into the two thousands, you know, they, they kind of still operated. Right. And they really set about a lot of our current ufological discourse. The problem is, you know, while I appreciate them, they, they, they hold their cards very close to their chest. They don't share a lot. So when they do share the UFO community kind of grabs onto that information, um, and it's a piece. It's never like a whole like thing. It's like these little snippets of data. And then we kind of spin out with it, right? Um, we start spreading our own disinformation mm-hmm. or misinformation because we don't have the rest of the puzzle. Um, and we start going down conspiracy roads and, you know, um, whatever. The point is you need to really start in the 70s, I think, and, and how on how Russell Targ, Kit Green, and, and, and Hal Putoff met. Um, and then how it kind of spread throughout the rest of UFO discourse, they've really kind of been the, the creators of it in a sense. Um, they've at least played a role in its creation, the, the mythology that we have. Um, as for the other people into the stars, like Chris Mellon and Louis Elizondo, I have no idea how they got involved in this mess. Um, you know, like that's, that's sort of the, still the big mystery to me. Like, I don't know Chris Mellon's story very well. I mean, I know his background, I know who he is, but I don't really know how he got involved in this community. Yeah. Me- Mellon, Mellon, I think, and Mellon and um, Mellon and Semivan are big, big question marks for me as well. They're it's kind of like, well, yeah, what we can. I mean, happened we, there? we can draw some lines. Like, I think I know when Mellon and Elizondo would have met, or at least where their paths would have crossed in in a certain government agency. Like, you can mm-hmm. kind of start as you kind of dig deeper into their past military or intelligence history, right? Where they used to work you kind of start to see these connections of like, okay, interesting. They used to work for like the national geographic intelligence agency or whatever it was together for a few years or, or Mellon oversaw it. And then Elizondo was employed there or, or Elizondo's partner was employed there. You know what I mean? And you can kind of maybe start seeing the web form. Um, but it's not really sure. Yeah. It, it yeah. is. It is hard to pull them. No, it's hard to pick. I mean, that's one thing with our series now is we're trying to figure out the same kind of thing, right? Where did, you know, where did, for instance, Pudoff and Bigelow first meet? Um, that's a challenge to figure out. We have some suggestions, right? There's some, I think there's some good anecdotal right. evidence to say exactly where that happened. You know, even say Harry Reid and Bigelow, um, we found, you know, it seems pretty cut and dry how they met initially, but then you have here read an interview saying, well, no, you know, we didn't really know each other then, whatever. The, with these other groups, I actually wonder, and this is going to sound kind of crazy, I think. John, so John Alexander, I don't know, I don't know how much of this story you know. John Alexander, one of the one of the kind of people that he worked with, or worked under rather, in the army, uh, became what was known at the time as the corporate world's first like corporate shaman. He, he was this guy that kind of, you know, all of those joke characters and shows <laughs> right, like say, right, Silicon right. Valley are, are modeled after this, are modeled after this guy who would, uh, he was, he was in the army or he was in the military rather. Um, he wrote this book about using, um, creating essentially like a military force of psychics who could, who could, you know, like deflect bullets and, you know, like, like Neo or whatever. So he was very involved with Pudoff and, SRI and 
you know, John Alexander, when he, they were working on kind of these esoteric military concepts and the men who stare at goats and everything. And actually, this guy is one of the main characters who was adapted into right. the men who stare at goats. But anyways, this guy, though, became like he would go to these corporations and do these talks about, you know, opening your inner eye and uh, using it to make business decisions and everything else. And we know that in the 90s, Bigelow was having people like that come talk at Bigelow Aerospace and that it was leading to these kind of big things where like Harry Reid went to some of these to go see people like this. I actually almost wonder if that's not also how Chris Mellon got involved and even Steve Justice, let's say, that they saw these people at these corporate events and were just like, huh. That's kind of, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, people meet each other in weird ways, but we can't, yeah. it's so hard and, to and, pin down, know, which is frustrating. Like I don't want to use this term because it sounds negative, but it, like it, it's all sort of, it's very incestuous, right? Um, the, the, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Like, uh, no, like, it's, like, it's, a, it's a small yeah, group and they, of people and they, they, who... They introduce like, their friends to the group, right? It's like being with the popular kids, right? You can never really yes. get in unless you're introduced because like, you know, it turns out you're cool. Um, so, so there's that, you know, there's that weird, yeah, like they kind of meet each other and then they meet this other guy and then he gets brought in, right? Like, I, I totally agree with you. That's most likely how it all played out, right? They just sort of had very similar interests. They had similar ideas of the universe and how it operated and, and they just kind of became buddies. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. Like it, it's, it helps. I think that a lot of them are sort of very financially well off um, because the, the realistic, you know, situation here is, is none of this stuff is ever going to get funded properly, right? It all has to be done sort of privately through private funding, right. through just, you know, quiet donors who, who have an extra couple mil to throw around. So they do um, because they're interested. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that's, and that's fine. Like, you know what, man, like, listen, if Robert Bigelow wants to throw money into this, you know, great. Um, go nuts. But it's just, we obviously need to be cognizant of, 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 what starts to happen though is when you start introducing just your friends into the circle, it sometimes becomes a bit of an echo chamber, right? Yeah. You all start kind of looking at the same thing, you start hunting the same thing in the same way. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you're, you're just, you're just going to get more people like you to come in. Yeah. You spit out the same ideas in different kind of ways. Yeah. Well, there's also a part of this story that we don't, we we're going to talk about on our show, but it never gets brought up really is that if you're rich, people just sure. assume you're smart yeah. and your ideas are good. You know, Jeffrey Epstein managed to have the world's best scientist go to his, uh, you know, mansion to talk about creating a, a clone right. army of him, essentially. <laughs> like if you have money, people will listen to you. Even if you're dumb as hell. That's just what happens. Not to say any of these people are dumb as hell involved in this, but that's a known phenomena. It's not hard. Uh, man, MJ, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for taking time out of your uh, your time with your family to talk to us. Any last ideas? Any last thoughts? Things things you want people to know about um, or hear about? No, no. Thanks very much for having me on your show. This this was great. Um, you know, if people want to go and read more of my work, you know, they can go to Vice and, and look me up or they can go to my uh, Twitter account at MJ Benias. They can go to my YouTube channel. Um, they can buy my book, The UFO People, Curious Culture on Amazon. That's kind of where everything is. Um, you know, I would say from a, a strictly just, you know, moving forward, I think just retaining uh, critical thinking and, and kind of being cognizant of, of the fact that, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it, it most likely is, um, you know, and, and just, 
you know, you don't have to buy in. Let's put it that way. I think that's what I need to walk away from, right? You don't need to buy in outright just to be supportive of something. You don't need to buy in outright to want something to be the case. You can just have be, be pragmatic in, in your outlook, right? It's okay to, you know, be like, ah, you know, maybe, maybe not. Does it really matter? I'm just going to enjoy my beer. You know, like that's, that's all you got. That's, that's my approach, I think. And I, and I kind of wish people would kind of take that approach sometimes. Well, I think, I think one of the best, one of the best parts of this, or one of my favorite quotes that you used as well on Twitter, right? The truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. Yes. It will defend itself from St. Augustine. hundred uh, percent correct. All right. Well, MJ, thanks so much again for coming on listeners. Go check out uh, MJ Benias. Look for it on Vice. Look for him on Twitter. Uh, look for his YouTube channel, too. A lot of great content there. And uh, check out the book, too, The UFO People. Uh, super fun. All right. Thanks again for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. We will be back next week with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Eliza. And I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all? And you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt. The ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words. My story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. <laughs>